0: Hey there, Poemcasters. Welcome to another edition of Poemcast. I am privileged today to have two guests, one local sleep physician who you may recognize from a couple episodes ago. Matthew Smith, is back with us.
1: Welcome. Thanks, Sean, for having me again.
0: And we're privileged to have a national grand round speaker who spoke to our whole group this morning, Michael Grandner.
1: Yes, thank you for being here today. That's an honor already. Oh, no, thanks um, for having me. Coming all the way from Tucson here to wet and cold Atlanta today. Dr. Grander is really self-established expert with all his hard work in the field of sleep medicine and sleep-related behaviors and how they impact disease, mental health, and longevity. He is director of the Sleep and Health Research Program at University of Arizona, also director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Clinic at Banner University Medical Center, assistant professor in the Departments of Psychiatry and Medicine in the UA College of Medicine, among some other appointments. But, you know, his, his work speaks for itself. He has over 100 articles and, and book chapters related to sleep and health, and his work has been cited thousands of times, really. And with numerous research projects, numerous awards and honors, it's really a pleasure to have him here today to talk about sleep and sleep technology and sleep health. And I think uh, there's a lot to be said about this sort of evolving field, rapidly evolving, and it's kind of an exciting time to be a provider in sleep medicine.
0: So I love the official intro, but uh, I really loved how you told us last night how you got into sleep. So if you don't mind sharing that, that'd be great.
2: Yeah, I feel very lucky that I get to say my job is learning about sleep and talking about sleep and running studies where we get to understand more about how sleep works. I didn't know this was a job you could have. All I knew was that as a teenager, I was very interested in dreams and understanding dreams. And I thought it was very, very cool. And And I would read books about it. And when I was in college, you know, I was deciding whether or not I wanted to be a psych major or something. And, and a friend had gotten a job at the sleep lab as a tech. And, and she was really excited about it. And I didn't even know we had a sleep lab. I didn't know like These things really existed and I thought that was the coolest thing ever and she was saying, yeah, and the guy who's running the sleep lab is going to be teaching a course next year. You should totally sign up for it if you think this is cool and so I did. And, and that was Michael Perlis's undergraduate sleep course at the University of Rochester. Anyone who knows him knows he's an amazing teacher. And I, I loved it. I volunteered to work in the lab, worked there for the next couple of years, turned it into an honors thesis, and eventually applied to grad school programs where I could do sleep research. And I guess the rest goes from there. I, I think this is... I think it's great. And, and I feel very lucky that I'm here at a time when the conversation about sleep health in the population is changing, where it's becoming increasingly recognized as important, and, and people are
1: starting to see it as as cool as I do. Yeah, it's been interesting to see that, you know, no matter where we are in society and even our socioeconomic status, more and more people are going back to, uh, Some basic fundamentals of just being human in a way between diet and exercise habits and now even, like you said, paying attention to their sleep, they want to feel better and they realize that maybe sometimes uh, the processed life we live, whether it is technology in our face 24-7 or the food we eat or or our habits, our activity levels, uh, even office workers who spend too much time in front of a desk are sort of revolting. Sometimes they come telling me, I don't want to do this job anymore because I'm afraid it's impacting my life and my sleep. And I'm just shocked that people are now coming to you know, their are providers with this sort of complaint or concern and they want to do something about it. So it's safe to talk about it, I guess. Now, I
2: think we're at a place in society where it's not as OK as it used to be to not take responsibility for health and well-being. And the more we know about how much control people actually have over their health and well-being, the less we can blame other people. And the more people are interested in, oh, what can I do? What do I have control over? especially as there are so many things that are stressful. What's optional? What can I wrangle? And I think that's where we're coming with diet. That's where we're coming with physical activity. That's where we're coming with stress management. And, and I think sleep is part of that constellation of people trying to take responsibility for their health and well-being and, and trying to figure out what is the most efficient way to do that. I think that um, we're not at a point anymore where people really brag like they used to about how little sleep they need. Funny enough, we're at the point where people still brag about not sleeping, <laughs> but it's more about I I know I should be getting more sleep. It's a, but it's a guilty. I'm, uh, uh, yes, but, bragging. but I'm just I'm just so busy and important. I don't right. personally have time. And I'm half joking. I mean people have real life consequences. And and They're recognizing that it's impacting sleep and that it's impacting their daily life. And I think it's great that people are trying to take responsibility for how they're feeling during the day.
0: That's such a good point. I think you're right. I I remember distinctly growing up, people bragging about, oh, I got four hours of sleep last night. I'm totally fine today. I just don't hear that as much anymore. Or I can work on,
1: oh, I only need four hours and I function fine, which we know now from data. I think that has evolved as showing us that the more you sleep restrict people, The brain starts to tell; it lies to you. It tells you you're doing fine, and and the the performance testing, you know. It's not fine. It actually continues to worsen. Yeah. So this is not good. It's like being drunk, where like the drunker you are, the exactly. less less able to tell how drunk you are. <laughs> you're um, doing fine. Everyone looks great here, you know. Right, right. You're totally like, you're not, I'm like no, you can't. You're dancing
2: yeah. great. Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Man, and, you are the smartest person here. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, and,
2: and, yeah, that's the thing where where it robs you of your ability to even tell. Yeah. yeah. Emotional dysregulation. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So the conversation is
2: changing, but sleeping less is still incentivized by society. It is. And I think it's great that we're starting to notice... But it still is in a lot of ways that are very subtle. Sometimes we don't realize that that this is actually an incentive for sleeping less. Things like early morning meetings or Mm -hmm. every office has that one person who, like, you know, writes emails at three o'clock in the morning or Mm -hmm. or is up till midnight or, you know, there's four thirty five o'clock a.m. emails of like, why is somebody (laughs) awake at this time? And inherent in that. Is sometimes the judgment of if you're not doing these things then you're not a good worker, worker. if you're not in the lab all the time, you're not a good scientist, if you're not working all the time, you're not productive, you're not contributing, Mm. you're not you're not playing the game, you're not on board. It's just funny how much that flies in the face of now decades of research showing that productivity isn't about FaceTime. Right. And workplaces are changing, but human nature changes a little more slowly. And we have a hard time measuring productivity without FaceTime. Yes. And because it's hard to measure, we default to the things we can measure, even if they're not accurate. And in the
1: cultural bias inherently goes into that, especially in the United States. If you're not working 24-7, you must not be productive somehow is, is that irrational thinking.
2: Right. Yeah. It's, not, it's not rational. It's, not, it's factually incorrect, but yes. it's still this pervasive cultural idea. There's nothing more un-American than unproductive <laughs> time. <laughs> unproductive time. Um, and it's, I don't know what we lost. You know, I don't know why we lost that. But one of the things that I like to tell people about sleep is that they shouldn't think of it as a cost. It's not like this is how much money I have left in my bank account at the end of the month, so this is what I can buy. Yeah. It's, it should be seen as an investment. It should be seen as how much am I investing in my ability to function tomorrow? Sometimes, you know, something might come up and after, you know, for a couple of days, you might be getting less sleep because you have mm-hmm. to be up late working on something or other. But that shouldn't be normal. That should be you splurging on exactly. something that –
1: Or set reason, perhaps.
2: Exactly. And then where overall you should be saving. You should be putting money away and, and you should be investing in yourself because at some point you want to retire. And it's the same thing with sleep where the data show that if you're able to sleep now, you're going to be able to get more done. And if you say you don't have time, what if I could find that time for you? What if you were already spending it in bed? I mean, what if you were already spending that time being unproductive? Right. And you're chasing productivity in the wrong place.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, for people who are listening today and even, you know, the patients that come and see us in the clinic, let's rethink about how you are valuing your time and what you're doing in that, so to speak, unproductive time. If you consider sleep as part of that, hey, let's, let's re-educate you to say, actually, this sleep is going to help you be productive in your wakeful hours.
2: Right. Imagine if you could be more focused and more efficient so that you wouldn't feel the need to be staying up so late because you would actually get your stuff done.
1: Makes perfect sense. Yeah.
2: Uh, And and there's data to support it. I mean, It's not going to happen 100% of the time for everybody exactly that way, but there's data to support it. It's not about a lack of time. It's about time utilization. And it's not that you're being wasteful with your time. It's that you don't have the mental capacity to function at your peak. So you're spending more time doing it, which is actually making the problem worse by not sleeping and and also not eating well and not getting physical activity because all those things support
1: each other. Yeah. And I was thinking about this this morning with John. I was texting back and forth. You know, there's a lot of geniuses. gene testing products now like the 23andMe and all these other things. And I'm wondering what you think about, you know, at what point are we going to start seeing patients with 23andMe reports with, hey, we found a gene that causes uh, restless sleep or a gene that may be associated with insomnia or poor sleep. I don't even know where to begin with that. And and if you think that will become a bigger thing in the future, how do we even begin to tackle how we study this to see if we need to counsel patients on this? Uh, We're becoming sort of like medical geneticists in a weird way. I'm not sure how to even tackle it.
2: Yeah, there's a number of sleep disorders that have been explored with underlying genetics to varying degrees of success, like restless yes. legs being probably the most successful in, in narcolepsy. Mm-hmm. People are searching for genes for sleep apnea and insomnia. They're hard to find because yes. these are conditions that the risks are overlapping. So it looks like, for example, a lot of the genetics for insomnia yes. are the same genetics for depression and the same genetics for anxiety and the same genetics for hyperarousal, just how resilient you might be to sleep loss. Mm-hmm. And there's genetics for how much sleep you probably need. But To be honest, my reading of the data is that we still don't know nearly enough Mm -hmm. to say anything remotely conclusive. Also, this whole idea of, of genetics for sleep need and resilience, need for what and resilience against what? Maybe you need less sleep to manage your metabolism, but you still need the same amount of sleep as everyone else to manage your cognition. You're maybe a little more efficient. You don't need quite as much sleep to be productive during the day, but you need the same amount of sleep as everyone else to regulate your blood pressure and sympathetic activity. So the idea that every function of sleep is exactly identical in in, in terms of need – Scientifically, we have little to no data on this. I mean this is – we're at yes. the start of Startup. asking this question. Yes. But I mean for people out there who are saying, well, I need less sleep, I would challenge them less for what? Somebody like I don't need as much protein to build muscle. But that also doesn't mean you need less protein for brain function and you need less protein for your nerve conduction. Like, right. Or, or whatever. I'm I, you know, not being a nutritionist. But it's just saying that the system might be more complicated than we make it out to be and that's OK. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And I, I always try to at least caution patients that the way you're presenting the problem to me when you come in with a report is very simplified. And sleep is not simple. It's complex. And it shows why in a lot of studies, something as sophisticated uh, or as complex as insomnia and anxiety or depression that may go along with it, why a multimodal approach to treatment works better than just focusing on one aspect.
2: Exactly. So sleep, uh, I'll be provocative and say sleep isn't a thing. Sleep is a word. And it's a word that we all use differently and we use to sort of describe a whole set of things. What sleep is, if sleep is a thing, it's a set of things mm-hmm. that all are happening together under some central brain control, but there's lots of different things going on. And in varying people, they may be different things working in slightly different ways. They all sort of are under this umbrella. And, and where sleep isn't just one process. Sleep is many simultaneous processes that may be functioning differently
1: in different people and certainly rely all on each other you know this bi-directional tri-directional quad-directional, right. you know components going on in the brain and brainstem to make it you know sleep be successful and refreshing right. uh, for the lucky few I guess out there sometimes
2: I do want to address that because sleep is really easy to complain about but the data show that if you have a mild sleep complaint maybe you're fine but if you have a more persistent sleep complaint if you're the kind of person who says, my sleep is terrible or my sleep is bad and it's interfering with my day, even if you don't have a sleep disorder, the data show that you don't necessarily need to accept that. Mm-hmm. A, mostly problems are solvable. And B, that's usually a sign of something underlying that needs to get addressed. I mean, people talk about sleep and aging and about how as you get older, sleep deteriorates and there's more awakenings during the night and it takes longer to fall asleep and Um, And and all that stuff. It becomes more shallow. And objectively, that may be true. Mm -hmm. However, if you look at the data at the population level and you ask people how often do you wake up at night, older people will say more. Mm -hmm. If you ask people how satisfied are you with your sleep, the the age group that reports the most complaints are 18 to 25-year-olds. Not eighty-year-olds. Actually, eighty-year-olds are the least likely to say they're dissatisfied.
1: They've got other problems, perhaps. Well, well,
2: that's the thing. They have (laughs) expectations. Their expectations are a little bit different. You know, on the list of priorities, might not be as high. But also, there's resilience, Mm -hmm. and also it's not interfering. They don't have to get up at five o'clock in the morning to go to work anymore. They don't have to take. You know, they don't have the same responsibilities. Mm -hmm. There may be different life course things going on. But so, like, if you if you're if you're seventy and you're like, yeah, my sleep is terrible. Don't ignore it. It might be a fixable problem. Exactly. And it might be a sign of something else that's fixable. Mm -hmm. Of course. You don't have to accept them. Help is easier to come by now.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay, so let's jump gears a little bit and talk about your work with the NCAA and athletes and some young people. So many young people are, are not afraid to talk about their sleep habits anymore. And, you know, young people want good sleep too. I think that was never a thing before. I don't know, as a, as a child or even in college, I never thought about my sleep. You know, I just thought about studying for exams and, and trying to pass everything.
2: One of the reasons I got into working with athletes is – I care a lot about behavior change and, and helping society sleep better. And you know, if you go into the business world, you still see a ton of resistance yes. against improving sleep and taking sleep seriously. But there's one group of high performers that lots of people look up to that don't have that baggage, and that's athletes. Athletes want to win. And if you tell them that standing on their head for 30 minutes, if you show them that that's going to help <laughs> right. them dance around for 30 <laughs> – three times before getting into bed, if that's going to help them win, they'll do it, especially if it's good for them. Yeah. Whereas they don't have that sort of – the same sort of baggage in the business world of like, well, my boss will think that I'm a weak person for trying, wanting to take mm-hmm. time to sleep. Yeah. No, the coach will be like, I want my guys to win. If it means – does it mean do we need to install a nap room or no? Do we, yeah, need exactly, to, do we? How right? do we need to schedule their sleep to, to help us win? So working with athletes has been really rewarding because not only can you actually make an impact. So the thing about athletes is the main effects of lack of sleep – The domains, you think of things like mental health, physical performance, injury recovery and Mm -hmm. healing, and also cognitive function and decision-making. These are things that are of exaggerated importance to athletes. If I'm slowed down by 2%, I won't notice. If one of them is slowed down by 2%, they lose. And so they're much more sensitive to some of these effects. So they're highly motivated to be sleeping better. But at the same time, athletes are often highly overscheduled, especially mm-hmm. college student athletes. Yes. It's essentially they're working a full-time job. The average college athlete spends over 40 hours a week on their sport. It's similar problems to a lot of other college students who are holding full-time jobs. So right. what's sort of different here is this is a very physically demanding job. This is a hard labor job in a lot of ways. Yeah. And on top of that, there's a lot of shift work involved because a lot of them are getting up at four or five in the morning because that's when they have to practice and train and lift weights. So here you have a situation where you have younger people who are predisposed to staying up later and waking up later, mm-hmm. being forced to wake up earlier, have a lot of overscheduling issues, have a lot of stress, yes. um, have a lot of physical demands. They're trying to balance academics. And most collegiate student-athletes you know, are high-performing academically because the vast majority of student-athletes are just students. Yep. They're not future pro-athletes. Yep. They're just college students. And they're trying to balance all this stuff. So- yeah. There's lots of data showing that college students in general don't get enough sleep, and especially student athletes. Yes. They're a group that's, that's ripe for intervention, where if we can get them sleeping better, First of all, it's a great living laboratory where we can test stuff out. If I can get a bunch of college student athletes with crazy restricted schedules <laughs> with no control over their life. Right. I mean usually if, if I say go to bed a little earlier, essentially what I'm saying is give up that last bit of control you have in your day. Okay, right. That's a tough ask. Yeah. But if I can get college students sleeping better and performing better and work, out, work that yeah. out, it would be easily transferable to other groups with – Less restrictive or similarly restrictive schedules, like people in the real world who are exactly. working jobs and balancing. Who
1: really could give an extra half an hour instead of watching that last television show.
2: Yeah, that's the thing about with these shows. The advent of digital video is the show will still be there tomorrow. <laughs> right, it exactly. doesn't care if you watch it tonight. <laughs>
1: Um, if, but if, you won't be able to talk about it with your friends. Perhaps right. uh, you, you might miss out on that opportunity.
2: Yeah, but that doesn't mean you have to
1: watch five exactly. episodes tonight. You can, you can stick to You it don't have three. to watch 11 hours of binge watching of uh, every, yeah. the entire season. Perhaps.
0: But all 10 episodes dropped at once. Exactly. It's like, very, very exciting. <laughs> you
1: know, everyone's talking you, you about you it. Gotta, you got to avoid the spoilers online <laughs> for a week and you'll yeah, be fine. Exactly.
2: So anyway, with the athletes, they're, they're a great group to be working with. They're highly motivated. At the same time, they have a lot of problems. One of the things that we've seen is that not only are sleep problems highly prevalent, that they impact outcomes. Mm -hmm. Actually, the NCAA work started because they were putting together a mental health task force because the person who they have is a, they have a chief medical officer uh, of the NCAA who's a neurologist. Oh. Brian Hainline, he's, he's an amazing neurologist. He's an amazing leader. When he came in, one of the first things he saw was mental health is a problem. It's a problem on college campuses anyway. Exactly. We can't fix all of college campuses, but we can deal with this athlete population. And maybe hopefully this will filter out a little bit more. Yeah. And so NCAA has made a major push to promote mental health, to start conversations about mental health, to talk about it, to, to reduce stigma. It's actually been great to see that that the culture around mental health is changing. And so there was a seat for sleep at the table because it's related to so many of these yes. things. Yeah. And so that's where this started. And now there's a whole separate – sleep task force to identify what's the state of things. There's going to be a consensus statement paper with recommendations and a review of what do we know that's going to be coming out this year. And that'll be great because it's it'll be the first sports organization to actually have an official word that, Hey, sleep is actually yeah, really important yeah. across the for mental health and physical performance. And, you know, take it seriously. This is what you should do about it. Here's how you would assess it. I'm really glad that it's taking the approach of their sleep and performance, mm-hmm. their sleep timing, their sleep duration, and their sleep disorders, which is insomnia and sleep apnea. Some sports have a lot of sleep apnea, like football. right But, you know, Treating student-athletes, we've seen lots of sleep apnea cases in fit people who are not overweight. Mm-hmm. It's just airway biology issues. Yep. It's adolescent sleep apnea and snoring issues. Exactly. And I say adolescent, but it's it's like the transition of a lot of them are, are young adults in their early 20s and in their 20s. So you have a lot of these young adult issues. Yep. And
1: we've caught a lot of stuff that would have never gotten caught because we it wasn't looked for. Yes. Focusing on these things, you're kind of giving these young adolescents and kids really – some tools to work with, some knowledge and education so they don't feel like they're kind of lost at sea here while they're stressed out from every direction. So hopefully when they make that transition to the workplace, the real world, I guess, for many of yeah. us, you know, they still have these tools to go by to, to be healthy. Right. And
2: that's the idea. Sport is supposed to be good for you and, and exactly. it's supposed to help you be more well-rounded and work as a team and work toward a goal and deal with failure and like all these sorts yeah. of things that it's supposed to be good for. It. Right. And you know, mental health is part of it, so that's where all this started. But then, this whole idea of sleep and, and athletics has sort of taken off because the data is there yes. for a lot of it, and it's and it's growing for a lot of other things. And now that there's attention on, it. I mean, ten years ago, the number of of peer reviewed papers on sleep and athletes was like a handful. <laughs> And now leaders in the field, people like Charlie Samuels mm-hmm. in Canada, or Shona Helsen in, in Australia, and you have some people here too who are publishing on this yeah. and and writing about That's pretty it. Pretty fascinating. It, it's it's, it it's, really it's amazing, is. and hopefully it can have a real good public health impact.
1: Yeah, uh, you know, and other people can benefit from this as well. Whether you're a high performer uh, in the office, uh, an executive, a uh, physician, you know, a lawyer, it does not matter. Exactly. You know, you want to perform well. Hey, look at that. We're learning some things about these high performing people who just happen to be college athletes. Right. So, Hopefully the business world – I think they are listening as the – well, at least the products that need, make it to the marketplace these days has exponentially grown in the yeah. last years. And many of these products are labeled as sleep things. Uh,
2: How and, and that's just so amazing to see. I got to say, I remember like 10, 15 years ago when like anything sleep-related on the market was like yeah. new-agey. It wasn't scientific. <laughs> right. And, and now we have – there's all kinds of smart people who can build stuff who are turning their gaze on mm-hmm. – sleep as the thing that they're interested in learning more about and building tools to help with. And, and I like as, as a sleep researcher, thanks. I mean, like, like this is, it's great to see that all this stuff out there. I mean, not all of it is great. Mm -hmm. Some of it is great and we don't know because it's not validated. Some stuff is misguided, but the idea is that the conversation is changing. And I think at the end of the day, that's a net good. One, one thing to think about is, is you see all these devices about tracking sleep. And I think it's important to point out, for people who don't know, this idea of using wrist-based movement to track sleep actually has a long history that goes back at least 40 years or 40 years yeah. more. Yeah. That we've been using this in laboratories for decades, and it's pretty well-established. It's not gonna replace an overnight in the sleep laboratory Mm -hmm. in terms of its precision to tell whether you're awake or asleep at any given moment. But the scientifically validated devices that we use in research, Uh, You have between 85 and 90% minute-to-minute accuracy, which is pretty darn good, especially if you're measuring people over days and weeks. So it's Mm -hmm. really useful for laboratory data. So now you have these products on the market who are using some of these similar approaches to measure sleep-wake cycles. And some of them may be good. Some of them may be not. And and sometimes it's hard to tell because all the devices that we use in the lab, we won't use it in a research study unless we've tested it against gold standards in a systematic way to show what the level of agreement is, in what size population, under what conditions, so we can wrap our head around on what it is we're actually measuring. Uh, and a lot of the consumer devices have issues with that where I don't want to call out specific devices over any others, but there's some devices out there that are used very frequently for which there's little to no sleep validation. And there's some where there is, I think, I think you know, a, a Google Scholar search will be able to. If you search for a product, you'll you'll be able to see what's there and what's not. Because I, I don't want I don't want to speak to any one over any other, but there's some products that are used by a lot of people that have decent validation data, and there's some that that don't. And what's tough is it's hard to know as a consumer uh, when someone says it's measuring sleep, how accurate is it? And I guess my answer is some of these devices are way better than people assume that they are. Even none of them are perfect. The consumer devices are way cheaper than the scientific grade devices and and they do tend to lose some precision, but they might still give you some really decent ballpark estimates, especially if you're averaging over a bunch of days right. where where like where where one exact night isn't really the problem. It's it's looking at the pattern and it can probably tell you a pattern.
1: Sure. And, 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 you know, like you highlighted even in your talk, it's having data is available is great. And consumers, I guess, uh, we're fascinated sometimes about technology and the data that's available. It's sometimes, well, what do you do with it? How do you change the behavior to make it better than – I still think a lot of everyday people, lay people, are sort of confused by that. Okay, yeah. like you said, that period of disillusionment now that hopefully we're coming out of. But I've measured something um, – why aren't I feeling better? <laughs> right.
2: So, yeah, measurement is not behavior change. Yeah, right. The analogy I like to use is a bathroom scale is not a weight loss program. Yeah. For some people, it's enough for them to change their behavior, to give them the information they need to change. For most people, it's not enough. Yeah. And it's the same thing with this. I, I think a lot of a lot of these devices focus so much on measurement and feedback of your information and nothing else. Right. And they assume that if I just show you what you're doing and give you some basic tips, yeah. you'll be fine. You'll be fine. And, and you'll be able to make these dramatic changes. <laughs> and, and I think inherently people think that because they think what they're missing is the information. Right. And, and
1: I only knew. And if like, I, if right. I, if, I,
2: if I only knew exactly what my sleep looked like, I'd know how to change it and I'd know what was wrong with it. Right. It's a little more complicated <sighs> than that. And, and, and a lot of people will have a device, they'll use it for weeks or even months, and then just one day, like, take it off and just not put it back on right. again, because the numbers stop changing, and it's not
1: useful. Yep. I and feel so, the same as well. So. Right,
2: right. So I, I think in the future, you know, I- integrating in more of the behavior change, mm. developed by actual behavior change experts, not, not engineers or people who don't understand the complexities of changing human behavior because there might be a lot of misguided approaches, things that they think are helping. So for example, if you want to get someone to quit smoking, if you say stop smoking, that will help very few people. And if you say stop smoking because it will kill you, that actually is much less helpful than people think because nobody Mm -hmm. out there – there's 20 percent-ish of the US population smoke and nobody thinks it's good for them. Right. So now what? It's more complicated. Yeah. And so people smoke for lots of reasons. And same thing with, with sleep. People don't not get enough sleep because they hate sleep. Right. You know, some people do, but that's a different story. <laughs> for most people, it's because they feel like they're out of control of their sleep. And just telling them they're out of control and reminding them how right. out of control they are might not be what they need. Yeah. Maybe what they need is have the feedback be, the evidence that something is or isn't working. Information alone is not. Does measurement not is change. not an experiment. Yeah, exactly. Measurement is yeah. not, measurement is not change. Yes. Uh, measurement can sometimes change, but only a little bit. And okay. so that, that's something that I think people are recognizing now, which, which I've had as a behavior change person myself uh, by training, like I'm happy about that. I would have, predicted that this is the problem that the field was going to have when measurement was touted as the change agent. Like, I could have told you that. that, that (laughs) Measurement alone (laughs) doesn't change much behavior. I'm excited for some of the great programs that are coming out. A lot of these devices now whether they're the wearables or the nearables, mm-hmm. they're starting to incorporate some of this, which is very cool.
1: It won't be long before your bed tells you what you're doing. You know, right. when you wake up in the morning time and then, uh, you know, your phone will ding that you need a nap in the afternoon time, you know? So it, it, I guess technology better or for worse is becoming so integrated into our daily behaviors.
2: Yeah. And, and it'll have reminders and hopefully new technology will be able to identify what aspects of your sleep are ones yeah. that you are changeable. Yes. And then,
1: or if there's a sleep disorder lying with in right. your midst that right. actually does Need some form of treatment.
2: Since most sleep disorders are undiagnosed. If approximately 10% of the US population meets criteria for an insomnia disorder, I bet 10% of them are not actually getting guideline based care for insomnia. If something like one out of every five men over the age of 30 has sleep apnea, according to the Wisconsin Sleep Cohort data ish, I mean, they're broken up by year and BMI. Mm -hmm. But if it's roughly something like that, are one out of five men actually getting sleep studies you know, or,
1: or – yeah, Touched the tip of an iceberg.
2: Right. I mean so in running a sleep lab, it's very uncommon to have someone referred for a sleep study that doesn't have sleep apnea. And, it, and that's not a problem with the test. That means right. our threshold for referring people is too high. Yes. We're missing – we're clearly we're missing a lot of people. Yeah. And I think as, as the stuff becomes more out there and people are more willing to come in to talk to a doctor about sleep – I think the conversation will start changing. I yeah. think the data shows that in primary care, um, a lot of providers are on board with sleep being important. Mm-hmm. You know, they and they just don't know what to ask. Right, and they don't know what to do about it. Even people who are trained medical professionals, right, don't
1: know what to do. <laughs> You're still mystified from by many complaints that come through the sleep clinic. Sometimes, right. like ah. Oh.
2: Okay. So I, I think the education around sleep apnea is mostly there where people start are, are know enough what it is and know how to sure. refer for it. But like for insomnia, for some of these other mm-hmm. conditions, I mean, I see people in my clinic, you know, I feel like a significant portion of the time it's people saying, wow, I wish I went to a sleep clinic 10 years ago. Why right? right. did I not do
1: this? Yes. Yep. A lot of people, um, I saw, I found the same experience that like, oh, you know, I just didn't know. Yeah, You know, a lot of even the sleep behaviors and hygiene and things like that, a lot of people, we, we take it for granted as working within the sleep community that we talk about it a lot, so we know it. But a lot of people in the outside world who are going through their nine-to-five jobs, they just they just don't know. And it's not their fault that they're ignorant of it. They just have never been taught. And, and as societal pressures have changed with their technology yeah. and job, you know, family members that now work from home. So yeah. they, like you were saying earlier, they feel guilty if they're not 24-7 working uh, because they say they're not in the office so they can't see who their what their colleagues are doing 24/7 so now they're worried that if their their colleagues may be working while they're taking a break right that's like well that's actually and, and, and even for worse your sleep.
2: i would argue that even worse is they're worried that they're being perceived that way
1: uh-huh, yes i think because be if they're tot- not generating from home and their boss can't see them physically, well we can't see that. Uh right. oh, hey, Dr. Schmitz. My not physically my guess, working. guess
2: is that people are more concerned with how they're being perceived, how productive mm. they're being perceived to be than how productive they, they actually That's are. That's a good
1: point. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here today. We we've loved having you on the show. Loved having you talk to our group and getting to know you over the last twenty four hours or so. It's been a whirlwind but it,
1: I love talking about this stuff with you guys. <laughs> no, uh,
2: thanks. It, it, it's, it's always fun to talk about, and it's such a great group here.
1: Well, thank you. Hopefully, John will join us in the sleep world more often. Uh, well, <laughs> we'll have to minimum, drag him out of the ICU. I know. At a minimum, I'm gonna you're guilting me
0: into trying to get a lot more sleep. <laughs> well, I looked good, at my. Though. I was looking at my sleep this week. And, if have an early morning shift earlier. It was like it was like seven hours one day, so four your sleep hours technology one day.
1: device, might I add, okay. exactly. Right. That's I great, mean, like, right? how
2: amazing is that right? that we have this? Yeah. So, mm-hmm. Like, I, I think I think the future is very bright. I think that it's amazing that the conversation is shifting. Mm-hmm. I think we're about a generation behind on sleep where we were with food, but that's great because we've come a long way with food. Where are there's healthy options everywhere now, right. you know, and and. We still don't eat the way we should, but at least (laughs) we feel bad about it. And and at least we have more choices. It's a lot easier to make better informed choices. It'll be exciting to see as the sleep story unfolds. And I I would just want to encourage people, take their sleep seriously. If you're having a problem, don't just sit with it. It might be fixable. Or at least improvable. Promise of technology is great. I think every any kind of consumer technology know that there are limitations. Even even a scientific-grade device has limitations, and one that is cheaper and more accessible, but will still have some limitations. Of course, you know it's not information from on high. It, it's it's a window, and it might be a blurry window, but it's still a window, and it might give you some really useful information. And especially if it's integrated with strategies and and. Other approaches, so I, I think it's great. I think the the future is great. It's exciting that that the athletes are on on board because hopefully that means the rest of us working people will look up to them and say, hey, if it's good enough for if it's right. good enough for them, it's good enough for them. Hopefully, you know, maybe maybe it's worth taking seriously myself.
1: Yeah. So I'm very optimistic. It's a win win for everybody. Yeah, uh, the providers, the researchers, and of course the general population. So it's an exciting time.
0: Until next time, keep streaming, keep reading, keep breathing, and of course, try to get some sleep. Get some sleep. (laughs)